good evening. This year is dedicated in memory of Yosef Hirsch, Zichrona Libracha, student at Yeshivat Aviftar, who met his untimely death here in Jerusalem. Uh, Yosef was uh, unique in that he always knew that what he wanted to do was to work for Klau Yisrael. He did this in Europe, and he was going to continue doing that after he left uh, the yeshiva. Uh, over the course of time, his family and uh, myself have become very close, and uh, it's actually an honor for me to give this shir in his memory. So, on the day of Lagba Omer, on the day of Lagba Omer, certain ideas coalesced for the Jews. First of all, the Gemara says that the students of Rabbi Akiva stopped dying on, uh, on Lagba Omer. Either they stopped entirely or they stopped little by little. It was something that happened that remains unclear. It was, we, we could not call it history in our sense of things. But there's this general idea that there was a, a tragedy, a great tragedy. And that tragedy abated after Lagba Omer in some ways. As a result of which, you know, there are different minhagim that Jews practice, minhagay avelut, during the days of Svirah. Some of them, some people, uh, it's the first days, and some people, it's the last days, before Rosh Chodesh, after Rosh Chodesh. It's sort of like a grab bag of, of minhagim on, uh, uh, for the Avelut of the death of the students of Rabbi Akiva at this time. And you know that Bar Kochva, Rabbi Akiva, I mean, if you don't know these stories, it's, it's interesting. They're very interesting. Even though we don't have a complete rendition of any of these stories, but we know a little bit about it. We know that Rabbi Akiva was a great supporter of Bar Kochva. And he actually thought that Bar Kochva was the Messiah. And the Rambam quotes the story that when Rabbi Akiva saw Bar Kokhba, he carried his stuff for him. He was like Rabbi Bar Kokhba's Batman. That's how highly Rabbi Akiva regarded Bar Kokhba. He thought he was a messianic personality. I don't make any connections to other messianic personalities in our time. Um, I wanted to, after Shira, I'll just talk to you for a minute, okay? <laughs> so, so, here you have these, these uh, that you know, you know that Rabbi Akiva, the way, the way I know Rabbi Akiva, I mean, I don't know him that well, and uh, I don't know any real biography, I mean, you can't write a biography of Tanaim, really. Right. You could just sort of, like, attack them from different uh, points of view. But you know, you know, you're a big one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True, true. Rabbi Akiva was a misnagid. <laughs> you, you know what a misnagid is? A misnagid values the text and is not interested in emotional outbursts. You know, as like the joke they say, uh, they, they, you know, that in the Gilat Esther, a couple of psukim are read with the nigun of Echa. 
So if you ask the Misnaget, why do you read the, the with the Mikan of Echa, he'll say, well, you know, that really makes my day. That, you know, Purim is such a silly time. I could turn it into a serious matter. So he says, why don't you read the whole Megillat Echa in the melody of Echa? So the Misnaget says, how much joy can we put up with? <laughs> so that, that, uh, that's a misnagit. That's the, uh, that's what a misnagit is. A person who values unhappiness. So you know Rabbi Akiva was the ultimate misnagit. He was the man who struggled, like he worked hard, he started when he was 40 years old, he had help from, uh, from his wife, who was the daughter of a rich man who disowned her because she married Rep. I mean, it's like really, uh, like a magazine. You could like sit there and there's the story of Rabbi Akiva. He was a misnagger. Now he had a Talmud. The Pukei one of his Talmudim was Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai. Now in the course of time, Rabbi Shimon Yochai, his birthday, his death day, his teaching day, his, everything is all wrapped around like Baomer. Now, everything happened to him on Lagba Omer, on the day of Lagba Omer, so that in Spat and in other places where Kabbalah became to, you know, had a, had a really strong position, so Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was extolled. And for some reason, I think now my, my knowledge of the history of this is weak, but of, of the ideas I think are correct. Somehow they started making fires on his yard site. Because he was a light, you know, it's like not so hard to, uh, to make a short uh, parable about why Rav Shibid Yechai goes with fires. Now, in the 19th century, in the 19th century, we're skipping a few days here because Rav, uh, Rav Shibid Ben Yechai was around the year 200, 250. And then, um, who came after that? Uh, Rabbi Yosef Karo was the 16th century. I don't know the exact dates. It was the 16th century, right? And uh, the Arizal was in, uh, was in Svat at the same time. It was like Rabbi Yosef Karo was sort of the Talmud of the Arizal. And then, of course, you get to the, to the Baal Shem Tov and to the 19th century in Svat. And the 19th century in Tzvat, some person, I'm not so doing such a good job today. The 19th century, there's a, well, there's a man whose name I forgot, who decided to donate a Sefer Torah to the new shul that was built on the kever of Rav Shimon ben Yochai. Right? You know, 10 Jews, they get together. What are they going to do? They'll build another shul. So, Abu. Eh? Abu. Yes, he's right. Abu, that was their name, the family name. And this story is written up in all kinds of places. It's not uh, not hard to find. So, so he he built a a, a Beit Knesset, and in in the kever of Rav Shimon Bar Yochai, there was nothing there, and he built the Beit Knesset. And he to inaugurate the Beit Knesset, he uh, he had a Hachnasat Sefer Torah. On Lat Ba'omer, because it was the death of Rav Shimon Yochai. And they marched from Tzvat to Meron. If you've ever been there, if you've ever done this, there's a very easy walk. It's like a, it's a bit of a walk, 
But it's an easy walk. It's not, you know, you don't have to climb up or climb down. You just walk. It's on more or less on the same level. And you get to, and you get to Meron. He did this every year that he was alive and it passed out into his family. Then it came, that came to an end and Bimikre, Bimikre, some of the, some relative of the, uh, of the Rebbe. Which Rebbe is it? Not Rijin, but, which re- which re- who which Rebbe lights the bonfire tonight? With a B. Uh, yeah. Boyan. Boyan. Hey, good, great. <laughs> Terrific, Boyan. Know the Boyan Rebbe. You should know the Boyan Rebbe because he's an American. So, like, Americans should have, like, special connection to him. He's, a, he's an interesting person. You know, he grew up regular, as they, they say. Like, you know, he was, like, modern orthodox, I would say. And he, uh, but he was, he was the next in line. There was nothing he could do. You know, those Hasidim, they don't let go. So he became the Rebbe. And since he became the Rebbe, he's very highly regarded as a uh, serious personality. A lot of people go to see him and talk to him. And uh, I remember I was in America someplace and I met his sister, who was really modern Orthodox. Whatever that means to you, I, mean, I know what it means to me. <laughs> it was just, she was like, really, you know, like. So I said, to her, "Do you talk to your brother?" She says, "All the time, all the time." I said, "Wow, that's really terrific. You have like an in-house rebbe, like you could, like you could always get through." So the Boyana rebbe lights the the medura tonight, eight thirty. He's there to light the the medura. So his great-grandfather bought the Chazoka from the Abu family who had lost interest in this and probably he paid them a couple of farthings but this great-grandfather must have realized that this would be a public relations coup right so, so look what happened look what happened created out of nothing they expect 350,000 people to go to watch the Boyana Rebbe light a fire in Meron. I mean, it defies belief. It absolutely defies belief. And since it defies belief, I'm sure that they're going to do this forever. And it's already called, it's already called a Chag. Chag, it's like Purim, like Chanukah. So, so far, so far the Misnagdim are holding out. You won't see any great uh, uh, misnaged or rabbi or even second class rabbi unless they can really do it and not be noticed. But the yeshiva guys, they do go. They sneak away. They get on one of those buses and they're gone. They're gone. There's no way you can get out of there once you get in. You know, it's like uh, so. So I think that you can't get even near you know you get to Afula you might as well park <laughs> the whole thing is really it's beyond it goes beyond belief it's bigger than Purim it's certainly bigger than Hanukkah I mean Hanukkah is, is today is no big deal but it's bigger than Purim which is a holiday that people celebrate in the street the biggest thing that ever happened in Israel and the amaze, further amazement is that of course it's an Israeli holiday it's a holiday that that is rarely said. Nobody else separated celebrated. I remember, except you know, the Zionists try to make the Lakba Omer into Yom Sport. 
I remember in B'nai Akiva when I was a kid, we used to have a Lagboma, we used to have to go to some stadium, and they would race and talk and run uh, three-legged races and potato, whatever, whatever it is, they do it all day. And it started in Europe, it started in Europe, in Germany, in Poland, they did this, you know, Germany, they, they, they called them, the scouts were called Van der Vogel, <laughs> you know. Which I don't know if that means scouts, but it's like to wander, wandering birds, you know, like, uh, anyway, it's all, it's really very interesting. Now, I am for years opposed to Lagba Omer. It's, it's, the fires are no good. It's bad for the health. Kids, children were killed on Lagba Omer, climbing up that ridiculous pole. It has a name. What is it called? Because if you can do two for two, Mary. <laughs> what is it called, that pole they put in the middle? You know, what? In Mayron, there's a pole? No, no, everything. When you build a fire and you want it to go up by Boy Scout training, you want it to go up be high fire, so you have to get a pole. You put in the pole, and then you lean the, 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 the wood against the pole. So you get a fire, not just a fire, but you get it up going up to heaven. Uh, a klutz. That's what it's called. Is it called a klutz? Yeah. It's called, it's called, you ask a kid, it's a kid in Israel, he doesn't know what it is. He says, Yesh lecha klotz, Yesh lecha eitz le klotz. You know, they, that's how they talk. That's how they talk. They, they, and, and they all do this, so they have to climb up on the klotz in order to get the wood piled very high. So of course some other teenage vandal, you know, lights the fire when a kid is on the top. That's what happened in my neighborhood where I live. A kid was killed was killed in that way. They were just roasted. Yeah. And, but it doesn't matter. Nothing will stop them. Nothing. Uh, uh, and they'll just... They keep doing that. We don't have a key. What is that? It's go down. It's downstairs. No, it was a pleasant distraction. <laughs> now, so I've been against, I was always against Lagba uh, Omer, uh, uh, and I thought that the Shukhanah was right, that it's enough not to say Tachnon, it's a great solution. And of course, since I noticed that the more I'm against it, the more my grandchildren seem to be there, <laughs> I figured, I figured that this is going to win, that Lagba Omer is going to win. I was on a plane. After the Shavu, after Lak Ba'omer, and one side of me said a Satmar Chotzit. So I said, uh, what are you doing here? Where are you going? He said, I'm going home. I live in Borough Park. I said, what are you doing in Eretz Yisrael? I came for Lak Ba'omer. <laughs> so I said, Eretz Yisrael, you're straight here, you're Satmar Chotzit. We're going. He said, Lak Ba'omer. It's Buddha. It's Buddha to come to Eretz Yisrael on Lak Ba'omer. I said, oh, okay. That was very, very... Uh, very interesting. So, so there, you, you see there's a, a futility in reasonableness. You can't beat it. can't beat it. So now... I have to tell you a story. When I was in your yeshiva, and I was going to skip out on Shira to... I didn't go, though. I, I was, I was going to skip out on Shira to go to, to go to Meron and I go on there. And I told you the day before, I will be here tomorrow. I'm taking the bus up to Meron. He just looked at me and said... Don't eat the meat. 
But you told me, you told me because you wanted me to stop you, right? Of what? Of mourning during the Omer. Is that equally unfounded? Well, it, it, it's not unfounded. It's in the, um, it's in the Gemara that the, this was a period of time of great tragedy. However, it's not clear when people adopted this minhag of mourning. It certainly wasn't after Rabbi Akiva died. And there are some people who say it's connected to the Crusades. That there was a lot of life-taking and wanton destruction during the Crusade era. And this period became more and more a time of, of minor kind of look because of that. I, I don't have an opinion. I'm not a historian, but... But you know, those are the, that, that's what some people say. I mean, there's always a question, even if you have a reason for general kind of mourning, it's not so easy to get it established. That, you know, just because you think people should mourn doesn't mean that they're going to mourn. Right? They could say, uh, we have that experience today in, in, in Israel, that, you know, not everybody takes the secular holidays the same way. I'm not talking about Haredi people who are ideologically uh, opposed. I'm talking about uh, people in general who are not ideologically opposed. They don't, uh, um, they don't react to these special days in the same way. They're different. They react differently. Some more into it and some not so much into it. Uh, that's okay. So all right, that, that's what I wanted to say about Lagba Omer. The second thing I wanted to say is really about the parasha. There are two things I want to say about the parasha. This is not on the sheet. And that is that the parasha mostly deals with the mitzvah of Shemitah. And the mitzvah of Shemitah, I mean, this is the Shemitah year, this year, so I think uh, speaking about Shemitah is not uh, a bad thing. The mitzvah of Shemitah is, is, to my mind, a little bit odd. Because it's a demand that we uh, accept uh, that God is in charge of the world in a very extreme manner. We do something that is going to destroy our ability to subsist unless we are supported by a, by a miracle. What we do is we don't uh, use the produce, we don't work the land or use the produce on year seven and then we plant again on year eight, and then we can only eat on year nine, so that sometimes we actually don't have any produce for three years. And that is something that, that can't work. I mean, no farmer on his own would ever choose to take such an option. And so the Torah itself says, the Torah itself says that if you turn to God and say, what are we to do? How are we supposed to live? So the Torah says, you have to follow the rules. And if you follow the rules, God will come and support you. It's the only mitzvah in the Torah that has that. When we say, we say Shema, we say, Vayan Shema Tishma'u. If you listen to the mitzvah, then the world will be supportive of your efforts. Meaning that uh, it'll rain when it's supposed to rain and it'll be dry when it's supposed to be dry. That's, 
that's what will happen if you do the mitzvot. But only about Shemitah does it say that if you have faith, you will be able to live. And if you don't have faith, you simply will not be able, you will not be able to live. Now this is a very, very difficult mitzvah to keep. And there's an opinion in the Gemara that the Jews of old never really kept, never really kept Shemitah. And the reason was that, I mean, we're not talking about people who are not quote-unquote religious, because quote, people are not religious, so it's not, an, not interesting to say that they didn't keep Shemitah. But we're talking about people who are religious, so do the mitzvot. But Shemitah, they were unable, they were unable to, to keep. Now, for a variety of reasons, in modernity, in modernity, the, the question of Shemitah I'm going to make a political statement now. Not heavy. I mean, the politicians are not doing so well. So I don't want to get involved with them. Uh, so in the, in the same 16th century that we mentioned before, Rabbi Yosef Karo and Rabbi Shai the Trani had a difference of opinion about the following question. Does Eretz Yisrael, in our time, does Eretz Yisrael have Kedusha? Does the land of Israel have Kedusha? The things that are grown in the land of Israel have Kedushat Shri'it. Even if we say that the that Shemitah B'smanazeh is only Durabanah. I mean, it's all, it's all very complicated. I'm trying to just get to the essence of it. So Rav Yosef Karo said, Rav Yosef Karo says that anything that was grown in Eretz Yisrael by a non-Jew does not have Kedushat Shvi'it. Rav Yishai Detrani, the Mabit, he said no, it does have. So, so for, from the 16th century until now, until now, we have generally accepted the Psaq of the Beit Yosef, which is that anything that grows, grown in Eretz Yisrael, in Arab-owned land, does not have Kedushat Shri'it, and you could just eat it. You could just eat it so that every fruit store, every fruit store in Jerusalem that has a hechsher of the Badats, right, the, those guys, the, the fruit and vegetables in that store come either from Arabs in Eretz Israel or from Chutzlaretz. And that really, there's no change. There's no change, except that today, even today, because all that that means is that Tnuva separates the things that are grown by Arabs from the things that are not grown by Arabs, they send the Arab stuff to Shalim and to Bnei Brak and kindred uh, spots. And that solves the problem. Now, during the six years, they also buy fruits and vegetables from Arabs. Whether they're native Arabs or Arabs from, you know, or from Jordan, it's all the same. It's just that during the six years, they're not careful to separate this from that and that from this. Okay? I, I, so that, that's, that's the generally held positionary to Israel. It was held since the time of the Beit Yosef until today. It was on that position 
that Rabbi Yitzchel Chanan was asked a question. Rabbi Yitzchel Chanan in Krakow, they said to him, we now have Haredi agriculture in Eretz Yisrael. Petach Tikva was started by Haredi Jews from Yerushalayim who went there and decided to be agriculture, agriculturists. And so they, these few people, were the only people in the universe who were really affected by the question of, of Shemitah. Because in Yerushalayim, in Yerushalayim nobody worked. This is not a new thing in Yerushalayim that people don't work. This is, you know, this is a long-standing minhag. Nobody worked. So when they wanted to buy fruits and vegetables, they went to the Arab market. Or to, you know, in Me'asharim, there's a, there's a market. And they went there, not to, uh, this one, but that one is called, what is it called? I don't know, Me'asharim. They went to Me'asharim. And that's why the, the old Jews in Yerushalayim all speak Arabic. They didn't learn it in the Wukan. And they didn't learn it at home. They learned Arabic in the Shuk. That's where they, that's where they learned how to speak, how to speak Arabic, because they all bought all the time, all the years. There were no Jews who sold tomatoes. There were only Arabs who sold tomatoes, and they sold their brothers tomatoes. The brother grew it, and he sold it. Right? That, that's how, that's how it worked. So the only people who had a problem with Shemitah were this handful of, of, of Haredi agriculturists who were growing tomatoes and cucumbers on their, on their fields. Well, whoever was it, whatever Jews were agriculturists for the first Aliyah, the second Aliyah, who worked the land, they couldn't care less. They couldn't care less. They didn't ask a Shiloh. They didn't go and send their Shiloh to Rabbi Yitzhak to find out what they should do because they, they, they couldn't care about even the ones who had a background, who knew things, who understood, but they weren't interested in keeping Keeping law. So you only had these few people, so Rabbi Yitzhak Chodan said, they said to Rabbi Yitzhak Chodan, we're going to die. Because we're not going to be able to support ourselves. We're out of the, the ring of uh, the people who just take money because they exist and don't work. We're supposed to work. We're supposed to make our way. Who's going to give us money? We're going to get money from So on that basis, Rabbi Yitzhak Chodan and two other Dayanim in Krakow said Heter Mechira said Heter Mechira it's problematic, it's not obvious it's not something that uh, but they said that if you sell the land that you're working to a Goy it goes into that category it's in the category of non-Jewish land right in the category of non-Jewish land and, and so okay, with certain restrictions you can eat the food, sell the food, buy the food, and you can live. When Rav Cook came on the scene, right now as uh, before World War One, Rav Cook came to Eretz Yisrael, became the Rav in Yafo. Rav Yisrael Chanan had died. Rav Yisrael Chanan, his heter, pointed out that uh, this heter is uh, is only for now. That's the way he said it. But every seven years, you have to review the situation. After all, he said. If they're, if they're gonna die, and it's really Pikuach Nefesh, I will, I will give the heter. But that means you have to check every seven years to see what the economic situation is, why you're well off, are you able to do this, right? So when Rav Kook came on the scene, 
uh, Rav Cook uh, was asked the same question by the same people. They didn't ask him in Yerushalayim. Yerushalayim was, was organized. They didn't ask him in other religious neighborhoods. I don't know what, Tveria. There were religious people in Tveria and Tzvat. Tveria, Tzvat, and, and, and Yerushalayim. B'nai Brak didn't really exist. And so Rav, Rav, uh, Rav Cook wrote a very interesting, long, interesting commentary on Hilchot Shmitavi Yovel of the Rambam. And he wrote ideological considerations and theological considerations. Really, a, you know, a great work. Uh, called, he called it Shabbat Haaretz. A great halachic, ideological, uh, poetic. It, it, it has all those elements in it. And he said, as Rabbi Yisrael said before him, okay, we'll sell the land. We'll sell their land, and they'll be able to live. But every Shemitah, you have to look into it again. Because he gave the Heter for one time. You have to look into it. If you can avoid the Heter, Mechira, you should, Rav Cook said. And that's, uh, that was one line. Then the Chazunish came to Eretz Yisrael. Right, the Rav Cook died in 1935. I think uh, the Chazunish came in 1933. Came to Eretz Yisrael, and it, if he came to Eretz Yisrael, and he left the Beit Din of Rav Chaim Ozer in Vilna, he must have had a very strong pull for Eretz Yisrael. I'm talking about the Chazunish, right? He must have really been a secret Zionist. Along comes the Chazunish. The Chazunish said no. The Beit Yosef was wrong. The Mabit is right. And the, uh, the land that's worked by Arabs, the land that's worked by Arabs, produces fruits and vegetables that are, have Kedushat eat, and you can't sell the land, your land, the Jewish land, to a Goy. That's prohibited. It means there's a clear Isser in the Torah, Lo Techanem, you can't give them, meaning the other nations of the world, a place in Eretz Yisrael, and he felt that that was an abomination, about which I'll tell you a story in a couple of minutes. He felt it was truly an abomination that the Jews would sell the land of Eretz Yisrael in order to avoid being from, you know, and also, also in his time, the time of the Chazanish, how many people are we talking about? How many people cared about selling the land of Eretz Yisrael? So, so interestingly enough, interesting enough, since the Chazanish was seen as being the Mahmir, right, the, like the Haredi, uh, the Haredi trying to do in the Datilu Umi. So the Datilu Umi guys say, they said, we're going to adopt the, uh, the Heter Mechira, even though there was no Heter Mechira, except for those people who couldn't live without it. There's no, but there's no, no, no Heter Mechira. Like if you lived in Yerushalayim, when I came to Yerushalayim, it was very hard to buy, uh, Fruits and vegetables on Shemitah. But you could. I mean, it was possible if you wanted to go out of your way and buy fruits and vegetables that were grown by non-Jews. Not that the Mechira non-Jews. But grown by non-Jews. You could do it today. In Yerushalayim, it's hard not to do it. I mean, the situation has changed so much that, that you go into a supermarket, um, you can get, uh, you can get um, fruits and vegetables that have nothing to do with the Hetem Mechira. They're either grown by Goyim, 
or they're grown by Arabs outside of Eretz Yisrael. Every every uh, every place, almost every place in Yerushalayim uh, does that. So Chassidish said, "No, you can't do that." And okay, so he had a different system how to deal with the problem. But even according to the Chazanish, of course, if you get fruits and vegetables from Jordan, as we often do, uh, we, Eretz Yisrael, Tanuva, right, get fruits and vegetables from Jordan because we can't produce enough, like the consumers here like tomatoes and cucumbers. So, uh, <laughs> if you can't... Uh, so for most people, even people who adopt the principles of the Chazanish, if they buy fruits and vegetables from Jordan or from some other country, from Spain or from Italy, right? We have a lot of a lot of that going on because we want to export, and in order to export, sometimes you have to import. Sometimes you have to export and import the same thing in order to maintain. You know, that's called business. That's called business. You got to keep the money churning around. It's like, like if you have cucumbers and I have cucumbers, so there's some advantage in me selling you my cucumbers and you selling me your cucumbers, even though the bottom line might be zero. But there's still a way of like talking to each other, drinking coffee, sitting around, taking plane trips here and there, we're staying in hotels, like that's all good. Good to have business, it's good to have expenses, because you don't get taxed on expenses. So that's called business. Uh, whoever understands that can understand that. So, so again, the Chazanish made it more difficult. The Chazanish made it more difficult, but not really more difficult, because in Eretz Israel, it's not a problem. It's not a problem to live according to the Chazanish. It's not like you have to go someplace to get fruits and vegetables. It's there. It's like all available. And more and more, because of this, I think, I don't know the psychology of Khumras, but the psychological psychology is that people like hummus. As long as it doesn't bother them too much. You, know, you want to be able to say to your friends, oh, we do this, we do that. How much matzah do you eat on the night of Pesach? You know, they got these kind of, kind of discussions that people seem to enjoy. So they enjoy being machmer. And so a lot of, a lot of uh, yeshiva people uh, have adopted the position of the chazanish against the position of, of Heter Mechira. But I stress that there's really not such a great difference between these two positions. It's just that the Chazanish said, uh, you can't sell the land to an Arab because even if you could, it wouldn't help because fruits and vegetables grown in Israel on non-Jewish land still have Kedushat Shvi'it. So the whole process is irrelevant and, and doesn't make any sense. And everybody, anybody who chooses either path, either path is, is going to be victorious. So somebody told me the following story, and with this I want to end the discussion of Shemitah. Somebody asked the Chazanish, and this is where I heard the story, I cannot validate it. I can only tell it over, you know, that's how uh, good stories don't have sources. So somebody asked the Chazanish, why did you make so much trouble about Shemitah? I mean, like, it's only Drabonon. There's a lot of ways to say that, you know, you don't have to be so machmer. Um, so the Chazani said this, reputedly, they've said this. He says, there are two mitzvot in the Torah. And you have to tell me what they are. Two mitzvot in the Torah. 
that affect our national character. They make a national character, right? Sounds like a Zionist. Is our nation? Like, who are we? Who are we? Are we the nation of Israel because we eat a matzah and Pesach? No. Because we shake a lulav at Sukkot? No, he said there are two mitzvot. There are two mitzvot. One is the mitzvah of Shemitah, which is a mitzvah that affects the entire nation simultaneously. Everybody's affected. I mean, not today, but in theory, everybody's affected. Says the other mitzvah that affects the nation as a nation is the prohibition against usury, taking interest on a loan. He says, not taking interest on a loan distinguishes us. Now, of these two mitzvot, he, the Chazanish, said, one is lost. Like, we do take usury on the loan. We do it with a trick. We do it with a trick. We, we, it's called the heter iska. We sort of like make believe we are partners with the bank and the bank makes a profit and then we make part of that profit. And the bank just calls it interest. But it really, we say it's not. Okay, whatever. You know, that's something that's called a, uh, a legal fiction. Like, you know, I don't know. Legal, I don't like to say legal fiction because it makes you think that it doesn't work. But it does work. It really works. Uh, that's when it comes to rebeat. But when it comes, so he says, I don't want to lose Shemitah. Now I take that, I take that as being the answer to the question of why the Chazunish came to Eretz Israel. He was not a member of a Zionist youth group. He did not come to Eretz. He was like fifty when he came to Eretz Israel. He did not come to Eretz Israel because he had nothing to do in the diaspora. As I said, he was a member of the Beit Din of Rav Chaim Ozer in Vilna. And Rav Chaim Oza was the titular head of the Haredi community in Europe, Western Europe and Eastern Europe. And the Chazanish was kind of his right-hand man. And, you know, but he decided, the Chazanish decided that the time had come, he had to go to Eretz Yisrael. And he felt apparently that Eretz Yisrael was the place where the Jews had to express their natural character, their national character. So when it came to interest, taking interest and giving interest, that was done way before his time. You know that there are some Arab banks that don't take interest. You know, which is, uh, which is annoying. You know, that the, the Arab, these Arab banks do manage to maintain the biblical standard and we, we don't. Of course, they get the money in other ways, right? They take fees. We don't like fees. Uh, that's how they, that's how they do it. But they do it. They're concerned about taking interest. So when you, and your credit card, when you buy things on your credit card, there's never an interest payment on the credit card, but there are fees that you have to pay. Fixed fees that, according to Sharia law, are not considered to be interest. Uh, they do it. And we don't do it. So the Chazani said, usury is God. Interest, I mean, we pay interest. We can't do anything like that. But we have to save, we have to save Shemitah. We have to save Shemitah. I think that sometimes it seems to me that uh, 
we're saving Shmita, but at the uh, expense of it not affecting us. Because what happens in reality is that it's all the same, right? There's no difference between keeping Shemitah and not keeping Shemitah. So the Rabbanut, the Rabbanut ends up doing the Heter Mechirah mostly for people who are totally not, not interested in mitzvot. It's sort of, you, you, you offer them this merit. You say, I know you're not interested in Shemitah, but if you, if you allow the Heter, Heter Mechirah, maybe in heaven you'll get a, a better deal. Uh, but most religious people, most religious people don't do it that way. It's true that in the Lumi world, there are some people who are ideologically committed to the Heter Mechirah. They've kind of decided that uh, that's what the real rabbis want, and that the imitation rabbis who look like old-fashioned people, they, you know, they don't know what's really going on. But sometimes I think that they also, Wittmann, Wittmann wrote a, a book on, on this question. Wittmann, who is the, um, the chief rabbi of Tanuva. You know Tanuva? Mm-hmm. Not an insignificant company mm-hmm. and re- in relation to all of these, uh, all of these things. So Wittmann, in the last Shemitah, like eight years ago, put out a book on uh, the ideological component of Shemitah, Eretz Israel, Zionism, you know, all that kind of, all that kind of stuff. But I think that it's misleading because he doesn't say that during the six years, in other words, he doesn't like the idea of buying produce from enemies. And uh, since all the Arabs are uh, enemies, he doesn't like that. But okay, you, I can understand that, but he doesn't mention the fact that we buy produce from enemies all six years, six, all seven years, not just on Shemitah. It's not like we buy produce from them to keep ourselves alive. We do it all the time, because we don't produce enough to feed ourselves. Because today, people don't want to be working agriculture. I don't know, it's not a... I mean, there's plenty of land because we're good at growing more out of less, right? That's one of the Israeli, uh, great Israeli achievements. But, uh, uh, but we buy Arab produce all the time. Like I say, uh, business is about churning up the waters. And so we're interested in churning up the waters with neighboring Arab, uh, Arab states. Okay? Okay, that's the second thing I wanted to to talk about today. The third thing I wanted to talk about, which I think thankfully I'm not going to be able to do very much of, is the first pasuk in our parasha. If you look at the sheet, the first pasuk says, Now we're at the end of Vayikra. Okay, so I take a deep breath. I, I really don't have to. I, I like to talk. So, this pasuk comes at the end of Ayikra, right? The end of Shemot was about building the Mishkan. The beginning of Ayikra, the first two parashiyot, were about the korbanot that are going to be brought in that Mishkan that was just built. Then, after that, there are uh, stories, some stories that have to do with the setting up of the Mishkan and then pointing Aaron as the Kohen Gadol in Shmini, and then Sukim about Kashrut, which animals you could eat, which animals you should not eat, and then more about Tuma Vitara, 
in Tazriya Mitzorah, and then a parasha which is mostly about Kohanim, Emor, right? So you have Vayikra Tzav, Shmini, Tazriya Mitzorah, Achreimot, Kedoshim. We have all those topics that somehow are connected. This is what the Ramban says in his introduction. They're somehow all connected to the Mishkan, assuming that we include Tumavitara, which is very much connected to Kohanim, right? And then Achremot, Kedoshim, about the death of the sons of Aaron, and Yom Kippurim, and then Achremot, Kedoshim, Emor. Then more regulations about Kohanim. All of these things sort of belong in the same book. And then Bahar. And Bahar is a deviation because Bahar is primarily about Shemitah. And Shemitah does not have anything specifically to do with Kohanim or with Tumavatara or with the Korbanot. It was all these topics that are primary in the book of Vayikra have nothing to do with, with, uh, have nothing to do with Shemitah. And the parish of Shemitah begins with this statement by the Hashem on Moshe Bahar Sinai and And so we wonder, what is this reference? What do you mean God spoke to Moshe Rabbeinu Bahar Sinai? If he spoke to Moshe Rabbeinu Bahar Sinai, why didn't we learn about it earlier? Why didn't we learn about it? In fact, where was Shemitah originally mentioned but in, uh, in one pasuk in the parasha of Mishpatim now you remember Mishpatim Shmot Vaira Bo B'Shalach Yitro Shmot Vaira Bo B'Shalach that's what is that that topic Yitziat Mitzrayim right Yitro Mishpatim Yitro Mishpatim is Matan Torah Matan Torah Mishpatim contains a pasuk about Shemitah right just you should have Shemitah Shmos Vaira Bo B'Shalach Yitziat Mitzrayim Yitro Mishpatim Kabbalat Torah. Remember that that the Jews were taught Torah in the in the parasha of Mishpatim, possibly so that they could say Nasev Nishma on the Torah that they didn't know yet. It's as though it's as though Moshe Rabbeinu, directed by God, tells B'nai Yisrael, "There's more where this came from. Right? There's more. This is only just a bit." And so B'nai Yisrael said. As much as there is, we'll accept it. We accept, we accept what we know, and we accept what we don't, what we don't know. That's an important uh, note. And then the parasha of Bahar, which comes after all these parashiyot of Vayikra that are connected somehow directly or tangentially to the building of the Mishkan, the story of Shemitah begins with this pasuk where the Moshe Bahar Sinai more. And so the question is, what is Bahar Sinai? Bahar Sinai, they did learn something about Shemitah in the parasha of Mishpatim. So what is this? How does this relate to Har Sinai? So Rashi says, I'm sorry, I'm reading from the middle. Now this, of course, is, is a, uh, a famous, an, an aphorism that is used by Israelis very liberally, right? You can even hear it on the, the guys who read the news sometimes or talk to newsworthy people will say, it's a, it's a non-sequitur. 
it's a non sequitur but uh, here it means why specifically do we say that Shemitah was taught to Moshe Rabbeinu on Har Sinai wasn't everything taught to Moshe Rabbeinu on Har Sinai that's what Rashi says so Rashi is teaching us a basic Jewish concept that Torah is min hashamayim. Torah is min hashamayim. I call a mitzvot. I mean, it could be that Rashi is narrowing it. Because if you would say, you say to me, what was Moshe Rabbeinu doing on Har Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights? Right, the first time, the second time, what was he doing there? He was studying the Torah. What do you mean that he was studying the Torah? I'm, I'm talking to myself, right? What do you mean you're talking to that he was studying the Torah? Well, he was learning that part of the Torah that existed. What part of the Torah existed? Uh, mitzvot. He studied the mitzvot. So God told him sukkah. God told him uh, matzah. God told him uh, uh, tefillah, emunah, all, all of the things that, that were there. What was not there? I, you could argue it. I'm not saying that you, uh, that I, you could not argue otherwise. But you could say that the story of Bilam was not there at Har Sinai. Because Bilam may not have been invented yet. We don't know anything about Bilam. Or you could say that somehow maybe God, I don't like that. I like, the, I like it to say that, that uh, God taught Moshe Rabbeinu the timeless Torah. And the timeless Torah was the Torah of the mitzvot. Well, the Torah of the Mitzvah and not the Torah of the stories. The stories eventually were given to Moshe Rabbeinu in Oel Moed. When Moshe Rabbeinu, when God dictated the Torah to Moshe Rabbeinu, which included all of the stories. Included all the stories, but then by then they had happened. It wasn't like Moshe Rabbeinu learned the Torah of the stories before the stories actually took place. I don't like that. So that's what I would say. That's what I would say. So again it says, Just as Shemitah was taught to Moshe Rabbeinu at Sinai, all the dinim, all the rules, all the regulations, of which there are many, that are not... Uh, stated clearly in the Torah, although Bahar is a very expanded version of the laws of Shemitah, but they're not, it's not like the laws of, of Shemitah. Uh, the laws of Shemitah were actually taught to Moshe Rabbeinu and Har Sinai. It's just that he taught it to Bnei Israel in the parasha of Bahar after all of this stuff. But Moshe Rabbeinu knew this. He may not have known how exactly the wording of the parashiyot is. That may have been told to Moshe Rabbeinu from Olmoed. So, klalotehem upratotehem v'diktukeha misinai. That's what he said. Avkulam ne'emru klalotehem v'diktukeha misinai. So this you learn a general rule that if it's true about Shemitah, that even though Shemitah, the Kalal of Shemitah is in the parish of Mishpatim, that was at Har Sinai, and the Prat of, of Shemitah is here in, in Bahar. So we say that that's, that's all the mitzvot. 
we, we make a, we generalize. We say, why did the Torah tell us this? Tell us Bahar Sinai. In order that we should understand that Moshe Rabbeinu studied everything that there was to study at Har Sinai. Right? Afkulam ne'emruv kolalotev dignemi Sinai. Tashnu yabetorat kohanim. And so Rashi quotes, he says, this is the way it is presented to us in Torah Kohanim. Torah Kohanim is a halachic medrash of the book of Vayikra. And has, it's, it has authority for Rashi. It's an authoritative source. It's like saying a Gemara. It's better than a Gemara. It's Tanaim. It's not a Moraim. Torah Kohanim. Another name for Torah Kohanim, Sifra. There are only three medrashei halacha in the universe. The Mechilta, which is on the end of Shemot. The Sifra, uh, uh, slash, Torah Kohanim, and Vayikra. And the Sifri, which means Sfarim. Two books, Bamidbar and Tvarim. Those are the three halachic medrashim. There are only three. The difference between a medrash and a, a difference between the Medrash and the Mishnah, all of both of which were written by Tanaim, is that the Medrash explains the Psukim, and the Mishnah lists the Halakha. Now sometimes the Mishnah also quotes a Pasuk, but that's not its basic format. The basic format of a Mishnah is Halakha, Halakha, Halakha. That's a Mishnah. And that's why the Mishnah was chosen, because the Mishnah is topical. Whereas if you go according to the Psukim, you go from one topic to another topic to a third topic, it's a little bit... But apparently it had these two ways of learning. In the time of the Tanaim, there were two ways of learning. They either learned Halachot, groups of Halachot that tried to figure out what they were about, or they learned groups of Psukim and tried to understand what the, what the Psukim say. Rashi says this Rashi causes a lot of problems this is seems to me that this is the primary interpretation of this Pasuk when you say Bahar Sinai when you say Bahar Sinai you mean it was all taught to Moshe Rabbeinu in Har Sinai what was all? The Klalim and the Pratim. There is a Sukkah, and this is how you make it. Right? There's a Klal, and there's a Prat. But they're all part of the Matan Torah that Moshe Rabbeinu was responsible for. Nira Lishatak Perushadafi, Shelo Batsinu Shvitat Karkaot, Shedishnet Ba'arvot Bo'av B'mishnet Torah. After all, there is no uh, mention of Shemitat Karkaot, of Shmi, what we call Shemitah, in, in, uh, in Dvarim, right? Arvot Moav is where the book of Dvarim, Dvarim is set. It refers to Arvot Moav, and you know a lot of things are repeated, are repeated in, uh, in the book of Dvarim, even though the Rabban points out in his introduction that many things are not repeated. There are also halachot that we learn in the book of Tvarim that we didn't know about at all. Uh, many places. Just some things are repeated. Barbot Moab, the Mishneh Torah. Mishneh Torah is a synonym for Tvarim. Mishneh Torah, Lamanda Shukla Lotel, Pratatel, Kulab, Nebu, Misinai. 
about this, but what Rashi is telling us and what was generally accepted as being the Jewish position until uh, modern times was that Moshe Rabbeinu learned the Klalim, general, and the Pratim, the specific details about these, about these halachot at, at Har Sinai. Now this question is restated Restated in the Gemara in several places. One of them in Zvachim. Right, one of them in Zvachim. I'll just go through this again. Rabbi Yisrael Omer. You see the second source? Rabbi Yisrael Omer, Kladot Nehmur Sinai, Upratot Ve'olmo'ed. Rabbi Yisrael disagrees with Rashi. Or Rashi disagrees with Rabbi Yisrael. According to Rabbi Yisrael, the general rules were stated at Har Sinai. But the details were taught to Moshe Rabbeinu and to Bnei Yisrael. The details were taught uh, after they built the Mishkan. God would call to Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu would go in and study the next section of the Torah and then come out and teach it to the people. Rabbi Akiva, however, Omer, Kralotu Pratot Nehemru B'Sinai V'Nishnu B'Ol Mo'ed V'Nishtal Shub Arvot Mo'ed so according to Rabbi Akiva and according to Rabbi Yishmael apparently there were different sources or locations for the Torah except that the Rabbi Akiva calls them Nishnu they were repeated the Torah was taught to Moshe Rabbeinu and Har Sinai in its complete form it was then repeated to Moshe Rabbeinu in in, in and taught again to Moshe Rabbeinu in Avot Moab in the book of Tvarim. Now it may be that... Na- what? Taught again to Moshe Rabbeinu. There was another revelation ah. in Avot Moab. Where was... Wait a minute, another of what? I'm just... Oh, Moab. No, oh, Moab. There was another revelation. Right. That's for sure. Right. So Mishra Shuber, Avot Moab, who's yeah. teaching whom? No, God was teaching Moshe Rabbeinu again. But it just doesn't appear entirely in the book of Tvarim. It was there. It was there. But the, the, So there were two revelations in Aravot Moab. So, Il Moshe Be'er at the Torah. So that's more expansive, more, even more than we knew before. And there are certain parashiyot in Tvarim that fit into that, into that category. What exactly happened in that? I mean, I don't know. I'm not trying to fool you. I don't. I just don't know. Yeah. I've thought about this for for many years, but I, I think that that what it means is everybody agrees that in some way the giving of the Torah to Bnei Yisrael was a longer project than the forty days that Moshe Rabbeinu was at Har Sinai, and whether Moshe Rabbeinu knew it all when he taught it to start teach to Bnei Yisrael or he was actually had to learn it over again as God spoke to him from the Mishkan, from the Olmo Eid in the Mishkan, that, you know, we can, we can argue about. I just want to point out that this Pasuk, by the Be'er Shem Moshe Bahar Sinai Lemor, 
seems to state clearly that Moshe Rabbeinu learned whatever he learned, including the Shemitah V'yovel in Har Sinai. I wanted to tell you, I mean, I, I'm, we're not going to do it now, but you could do it on your own if you want. This Pasuk, Vayikr Perek Zayin, Asher Tzivah HaShem Et Moshe V'har Sinai, Biyom Tzavoto Et B'nei Yisrael Akrivito B'nei Hem, L'Hashem B'midbar Sinai. Again, the first phrase is, we're talking about material, we're talking about Korbanot. Right, this is Vayikra Perek Zayin. Perek Zayin is Tzav. Vayikra and Tzav are, are the parchiot of Korbanot. So this pasuk says that God commanded Moshe the Har Sinai. But they weren't at Har Sinai. They were certainly not at Har Sinai. So the Ramban goes at great length to try to explain that Har Sinai could mean any place in Midbar Sinai could also be called Har Sinai. So that according to the Ramban, he changes Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva's statement said, there were three locations. There's Har Sinai, and there's uh, Ol Moed, and then there's Arvod Moab. So he says Har Sinai and, and Ol Moed are the same. Because as long as the Jews were wandering around the desert, you could call that place Har Sinai. Like, like it's often true, you, you name... Uh, you know, if you go to Mount Everest or something, you don't be on top of the mountain to be at Mount Everest. You could be pretty far down and away, but it's still the most dominant piece of scenery in the place. So that uh, the Rabban goes out of his way to prove that Har Sinai might mean uh, uh, Midbar Sinai. That Midbar Sinai and Har Sinai were synonyms. And therefore the Torah would have been given to Moshe Rabbeinu perhaps, but taught to B'nai Yisrael only in Midbar Sinai and not afterwards. So this question, this question is resolved by the various Rishonim. We don't have time now for this. The Rambam, the Ramban, I mean they all think that uh, the, the, the Rambam actually is concerned with trying to understand where all this extra Torah came from. You know, like there are Minhagim and Takanot and and siagim, he calls them all these kinds of additions of the, where in the Gemara it says, Oh, Chachamim decided that you should do this in order to be protective of the mitzvah. That's a theologically difficult idea because why, why would I think that I could improve the Torah? I mean, it, even if you see that people are falling and they're not actually keeping the Torah properly, but who said that that's what you're supposed to do? We all know that there's a prohibition in the Torah against adding or subtracting. Lotosif, you're not allowed to add anything to the Torah. Not allowed to add anything to the Torah means, means that you can't, uh, well, that's what it means. You can't add to the Torah. So how was it that the Chachamim decided to add all kinds of things, which the Rabban calls again, Takanot and Shiagim and uh, so the Rambam, the Rambam says, the Rambam said, there's a heter in the Torah to do that. When you see that the Torah is jeopardized, you can try to fix it. That's what the that's what the Rambam the, the Rambam says. Okay, uh, we talked about I forgot already what we talked about. Talked about Lakbaum. We talked about Shemitah. We talked a little bit about the Har Sinai.